of what's going on in these chapters. I want to thank Pastor Mark. You've done a great job of outlining for us, giving us assignments uh, to get through this wonderful book. That's a really hard job uh, for any book. It's really, really tough with Isaiah because it doesn't organize itself very easy to be chopped up, So, um, uh, especially in ways that make it easy to preach. But here we are, um, I, and you're getting a handout. I just like to always pause. It, it helps me to remember perspective, what's going on even right now. So we're in the year 2018. Um, we uh, have a lot of modern stuff and conveniences and we are now all gathered around putting our attention for a little while on a text that was written 2,700 years ago. Like, just think about that for a second. We wouldn't gather... I can't think of a, and I like newspapers, I can't think of a story in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. I think I've covered all the, uh, the political spectrum there, so hopefully everybody's okay. Um, those are some of my favorites. Uh, so I can't think of a story that would, I could really say, you know what, this is worth commending our attention around. Uh, a contemporary story. And we're gathered around a text written 2,700 years ago and we're placing our belief in it that that text actually holds for us the very words of God. That's an amazing thing, right? But that, that's what's happening. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then uh, we are going to dive into Isaiah chapter 28 through 35 but in particular Isaiah 30 and pray that God would speak through His Word. Father, we come, we are amazed just by what's going on in the moment of what you're doing uh, by bringing us to this text that even though written to people in a specific situation then, obviously has ramifications for our lives now. And so we ask that your spirit would work. We pray I pray, Father, for every hearer of the Word that You would be so kind to draw our attention off of the things here and now and for just a little bit, focus our attention on Your Word. I pray, Father, as a preacher, that what would be communicated would effectively take Your bread, the bread of Your Word, and give it to Your people so that we can eat. And Father, I pray that the incredible, incredible truth of the gospel would go out. That this gospel that wasn't just breathed up as soon as Jesus got out of the grave, but this gospel which was predestined way before the ages ever began, that this gospel would get all the attention and all the adoration it deserves. And in so doing, you also will. So we pray these things to you, Father. We pray them through the strong name of King Jesus. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, He will guide us now. Amen. So our family, we had a, a Labrador retriever. His name was Calvin. Uh, Calvin is a good dog. Uh, we were actually very sad about a year and a half ago to have to put Calvin down, but he lived a good 
long life uh, for a dog. Calvin was no small dog, um, and as such, it uh, became very apparent that he was going to need to be trained or Calvin was going to ruin our property. Um, so uh, I, I went, did some research, and I found a free dog training course uh, there in the rural part of the county that we lived in in that time in Texas. The guy who ran the school, he, he was the epitome of a good Texan. He said he would offer the classes for free on two conditions. One, every dog owner had to stay with his dog. Said, you're not paying me. I don't want to be with your dog. You got to do be with your dog. And two, he could kick you out of the class anytime he got on his nerves. You're on my property. If you get on my nerves, I'm going to tell you to leave. Um, okay. Uh, whole time I'm thinking I'm not paying for this. Well, I ended up learning a whole lot from this guy. I absolutely loved going uh, to uh, to the dog training every week. Uh, two things stuck out to me. First was the alpha concept. So he taught us that dogs, they just really aren't that complex in how they obey. They obey anyone or anything they think can eat them and they disregard anyone or anything they think they could eat. So he said as soon as a person or another animal walks in a room, a dog sizes it up. Is there a better chance that I'll be eating them later? Or they might be eating me later. If I might be eating them later, I'll disregard it. If there's a chance that they could just eat me, I think I'll listen to them. The alpha concept. That made great sense to me. Uh, the second thing that stuck out was the importance of the stay command. According to my dog sage, the most important command of all commands is the stay command as it is the hardest for any dog to obey. I think the line from the dog sage went something like this. Any nimwit can teach a dog to roll over for some treat, but only an owner that the dog respects can teach the dog to stay and wait. Waiting is the ultimate act of submission. That's true for dogs, and it's true for humans. Perhaps the hardest command that God's, God gives His children is the stay command. Waiting is hard for us. Waiting was hard for God's people when Isaiah was writing to them. Off to the east, the northeast of uh, where Israel was, there was an Assyrian army of the best trained fighters in the world and it wasn't a matter of if they might come to Israel, it was when they may come. There was no doubt that they were more capable, there was no doubt that they could and would wipe them out. And God promised His people, I will protect you, I will take care of you, wait. Judah and Israel did not want to wait. They continued to ignore God. They continued to disobey God. In chapter 28 through 35, we get these six, what are called six woes. Now, we don't use the word woe much, and so it's not but so helpful for us. 
While we don't use the word much, it's certainly within our vocabulary. It is that sound, it is that utterance that we make. It might even at times be a non-pulpit worthy word that we use when we are frustrated. It's the sounds you make when your pet chews up something more valuable than them. It is the utterance you proclaim when the kids are misbehaving in the back seat and your patience flew out the window eight miles back. It is the utterance that you give forth when you arrive at the coffee supply in the morning and realize it Besides all of your precautions to keep this from happening is empty. Oh, right? You know that. So we don't say, whoa, we say, ah, oh, right? That is the sound. It is alarm mixed with frustration, baked in adversity, and topped with disdain. And for some reason, and I don't know why, the ESV translates it as ah, A-H. That's a bad translation. That is woefully inadequate. That does not cover it. So I want you to see these very quickly. There's six woes, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. God pronounces something on the lines of woe. Ugh, Jerusalem in Israel. I'm tired of your drunken ways, tired of your priests who are ignorant of my words and are more inebriated than sober. In chapter 29, verse 1, God pronounces, Woe, ah, Jerusalem, I'm tired of all your religious feasts accompanied by rebellious hearts. In chapter 29, verse 15, God explains, Woe, ah, quit playing like I don't see what you plot and plan. You don't keep anything from me. I know all your secrets. In chapter 31, verse 1, God proclaims, Whoa! Ugh! Why do you, my people, go to Egypt for help like Egypt's going to help you? And in chapter 33, God turns to Assyria who thinks that they are just going to come wipe out Israel. And he declares, Whoa! Ah! Who are you to think that you'll get away with destroying my people? I will let you conquer them, but then I will destroy you. The sixth woe of this section comes at the beginning of chapter 1. So turn, sorry, beginning of chapter 30, turn your attention to Isaiah 30, verse 1. ESV has awe here, but we're going to say, Woe, woe, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may now add sin to sin. God here declares woe upon His children for being a stubborn people. He declares, declares judgment on them as those who carry out a plan but not 
his plan. And now, in so doing, he has accused them of perpetrating two crimes. Two crimes. One, not carrying out his plan. And two, devising their own scheme. Devising their own plan. God outlines both of these acts in chapter 30. And I want us to be careful to watch because these are two crimes that we carry out every time we sin. Both of these acts reveal an unwillingness to wait. An unwillingness to wait. First, let's consider an unwillingness to wait manifested by rejecting God's Word. God explains that they have failed to carry out His plan by failing to listen and to obey His Word. There's multiple places here, but let's just look at Isaiah 30, verse 9-11. through 11, And all of these verses should be on your handout. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They are people unwilling to hear the Word of God. Isaiah says they don't want to hear the instructions of the Lord. They don't want to hear the Word of God because they don't want to know the God of whom it speaks. How do we know that? What's represented by them saying, let us hear no more about who? The Holy One of Israel. Mark this down. Behind every rejection of the Word of God is a rejection of the person and character of God. Israel sought to reject God's Word because His words represent His character. There's an irony here. I think it's meant. Recall in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah encounters God Himself in that passage of Isaiah 6. And, and remember he heard the angels worshiping God. And remember the threefold declaration holy 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 how does isaiah respond respond do you recall that isaiah responded with what whoa whoa is me and what was his reason he gives his reason i love it when the scriptures give us reasons he says i am lost I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when a lost man encounters the holiness of God, he responds with what? Whoa. Whoa. Alarm. And now God, in His holiness, is encountering the sinful, rebellious people the people of unclean lips. And how does God respond? He responds with His own alarm. His own woe. His people didn't just reject the Word of God. They went further. They proceeded in their ignorance. They asked 
the leaders, to prophesy to them something else. Isaiah said they told their wise men, do not see. They asked their preachers, do not prophesy to us what is right, but speak to us smooth things, illusions. How ridiculous does that sound? We want the wisest among us to close their eyes. And we want our preachers to tell us lies. That's like boarding a flight and asking as you board, can you promise me the pilots will all fall asleep? And when they're asleep, will you please ask the flight attendants to sing lullabies to us? We don't care where we're heading. We don't even care about the danger. Just let us enjoy the ride. But that's not isolated to Judah and Israel 2,700 years ago. 700 years after that, as the church was being birthed, Paul writes to young Timothy, and listen how similar this sounds. Here's what he warns young Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says in verse 3, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And this has not changed in our day, has it? 2,700 years after Isaiah, all across the world, there are people paying other people to stop telling them what the Word of God really says and to instead substitute what they want the Word of God to say. And so there's a warning to us. How will we respond to the Word of God? Do we understand the Word of God to be a burden that we must bear? Or do we understand it as to be a gift from God that we can enjoy? That will depend on how we understand God Himself. If we see God as the one to whom and the only one to whom we can know, the only one who has life, the one to whom our treasure lies, and to whom we want to cling, then the words of God to us will be a gift. If we see God as one to whom we just must endure, so that we can actually get the other things we really want, then His Word will always be a burden. And I promise you, we will always be seeking to refine it. Smooth it out. The children of God want to know their Father. So they want to know the Word of God. The enemies of God want to ignore their judge. So we see the people of God failed to carry out God's plan as they rejected His Word. They were unwilling to wait, and so they reject His plan. But the second offense they committed, 
The second way they were unwilling to wait is they devised their own plan. This leads to another tactic we turn to as we're unwilling to wait. It is the tactic of turning to a substitute sovereign. Now the word sovereign, maybe we don't use it that much. It actually means one who is supreme, one who is ultimate. The Bible from cover to cover clearly teaches that God and God alone is the ultimate sovereign. He has supreme, He has ultimate power. He has full independence. He maintains complete control. It was this sovereign God who was calling Judah and Israel to wait, but they rejected God. Instead of waiting for God, the sovereign, to act in the midst of their circumstances, the people of God rejected Him and they went to another sovereign. In particular, they looked south to Egypt. Now there's an amazing irony to this. When they did pick a substitute sovereign, they chose Egypt. Egypt, the very nation to whom God, their ultimate sovereign, had rescued Israel from, the very nation that had enslaved them, the very nation who slaughtered their children, they now turn to instead of God who rescued them. In verse 15, Isaiah clearly describes the choice they made of Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the, the Holy One of Israel. There's a point there. The Sovereign. In returning and rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. In other words, if you wait, if you wait, there will be strength. But they are unwilling to wait. They're unwilling to rest in the sovereign, the ultimate sovereign. God says that our strength comes in quietness and in trust. Let that sink in. Swallow that. God says we gain strength in quietness and trust. This is one of the reasons I love being in a church where there are saints who are older, more mature. You're such a help to young bucks like me. It is so helpful when you tell me of the many times when you were hurried, anxious, or whatever, and you just waited. That is so helpful. That's what the Word of God says here. Our strength doesn't come with all of our schemes and all of our quick plans of action. Our strength comes how? Trust and quietness. That's not what Israel did. No, verse 16 says different. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. No, we'll flee upon horses. If you had any idea how big the Assyrian army was compared to the Israel army, it would be like the biggest group of German tanks coming through and us all grabbing a golf cart. 
um, and saying, we're heading out of here. Okay. Um, no, we'll flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we'll ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. Throughout the chapter, God attempts to show them how ridiculous it is that they would go down to Egypt. He actually explains this in the first couple of verses of the chapter. Uh, he says there, those who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take protection, refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. God shows them, you have made a foolish choice. For of course the idea of another sovereign is an absurd idea. There can only be one ultimate sovereign by very definition of the word ultimate sovereign. So the people of God did not want to substitute a sovereign, but instead they substituted the sovereign for one who is nothing close to sovereign. The dog trainer taught us that every dog has a single sovereign. That was hilarious as Calvin was around our kids. I could tell him what to do and he did it. Kids tell him what to do, he didn't care. It didn't matter how well they said it, it didn't matter how yell, loud they yelled, he didn't care. I didn't have the heart to tell them that according to my dog trainer, that's because he looked at them every time and said, if I needed to, I could eat you. As creatures, we have a sovereign. When we act in a way that is right, we follow the wishes and the commands of our ultimate sovereign, the Lord our God. And when we act in a way that is wrong, then we wrongly order the universe when we turn to a substitute sovereign, that is the very definition of sin. Jeremiah in chapter 2 describes this so well. He says this in verse 13. My people have committed two evils. Sound familiar? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. The first evil is always to reject the perfect fountain of God's provision. The second evil is to turn in our foolishness to something that has leaks all in it. That is what sin is. It is a refusal to wait for God's full provision and instead run to an immediate semi-provision of some other source or someone who is less capable than God. This is where this passage, though, takes a really odd turn. And praise God for how odd it is. So if you're walking through this, and it's just historical narrative, you're thinking the next passage or the next section, the logical conclusion would be something on the lines of, and therefore God wiped them out and found another people, right? That would be the logical conclusion in historical narrative. But verse 18, everything changes. 
This is, verse 18 has two of the sweetest sentences in all of literature ever. Read these with me. Therefore, the Lord, what? Waits. This is the gospel. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are all those who wait for Him. The Lord waits. He what? He waits. When we were unwilling to wait, He waits. And look, He doesn't wait to punish us. He waits to be what? Gracious to us. He waits to give to us. It's our final point. We serve a God who graciously waits. It is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. We as sinners were unwilling to wait for God and yet He is willing to give to us. Now think about it. Let me give you a scenario that might help. Imagine there's a patient who's in pain and he calls a doctor and the doctor says that they're going to meet around 11 o'clock. At 11.03, the doctor isn't there and so the patient leaves and remains in pain. That makes no sense. You're the one taking. You're the one in need. You're the one willing to wait, even if it means waiting longer, right? Change the scenario. Now the doctor gets to the meeting spot at 11 and the patient isn't there by 11.30 and so the doctor leaves. We hear that and we go, that makes sense. The one who, is, the one who has something to give doesn't need to wait. That is the exact opposite of Isaiah 30 and it is the Gospel. In Isaiah 30, God waits ready to give to those in need. Meanwhile, those who are in need are unwilling to wait. And instead, they seek help from someone that cannot help. And that is the same for every creature born under Adam. We are those who should be waiting and trusting in God. And yet we are those who have turned in rebellion. And the gospel is the incredible news that God is waiting still to be gracious to us. He is waiting to give. Friends, heed this call today. God waits right now to be gracious to you. Anytime, the Bible tells us, anytime your ears can hear and process those words I just said. It is an act of divine mercy. So let me say it again. God is waiting to be gracious to you. If you hear that, that means that this second in eternity, God 
is being merciful to you. You do not know when you will stop hearing those words. But that day can come. If you are hearing those words and it's falling on your heart as to say, I really believe it. Would you please act on that today? Find somebody to talk to. Find somebody who will help you process that. God is waiting to be gracious to you. This begs another question. How can God be gracious to us? The second part of verse 18 says He's a God of justice. Well then how can a God of justice be gracious to us if we are not just? That's not right. If He's just, then He has to give us the just consequences of our action. That's what the definition of just means. It's the gospel. When we were not the children we should have been, He treated His only child, His perfect Son, with the punishment that we deserved. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might be the righteousness or become the righteousness of God. God goes on to promise the Israelites that even in the midst of their rebellion, He would take care of them. Look at these promises in verse 19 and 20. It's like it's just chucked out there. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as He hears it, He answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eye shall see your teacher. Did you catch that part? It says there that He will give them the bread of adversity and the water of what? Affliction. Does your understanding, does our understanding of God have a place in it for a God who feeds His people by allowing them to walk through tough times? That's what it says. It's bread of adversity. It's, it's waters of affliction. But that helps make sense of the fact that he says, as soon as he hears it, he answers you. I don't know what's going on in everyone's heart in this room, but I know enough to know that some of you are going, no, he doesn't. I've cried and I've asked and I've cried and I've begged and he's not answering. But don't you realize that the time difference, the waiting that you're going through, that's God's loving way of giving you bread of adversity and water of affliction. They are, it is a both and. He will answer you every time. But sometimes He answers with the bread of adversity. And sometimes He answers with the water of affliction. I can promise you every time it is exactly what we need. God rescued us on the cross of Christ 
it says. God allowed us to continue to be grown through tough times, adversity and affliction. But now look at this final promise in in verse 21 and 22. (laughs) And you... Your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you'll defy your carved idols, overlaid with silver, and your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things, and you'll say to them, Be gone. Oh, my... (laughs) So if you're here and you're going, I hear you, Tim. This is great, man. I'm with you. Church time, I'm like, hey, I will not reject the Word of God and I will not turn to substitute sovereigns. I'm with you. But I know me. I know me. I know that it won't take much and I'll, I'll turn. I know me. There's coming a day when you won't turn. (laughs) There's coming a day when you get ready to go to the left or to the right and immediately. That's what the Word of God just says. What are you going to hear? I love it. You're going to hear your teacher. And he's going to say, no, 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 no. Walk in it. You say, but Tim, I don't always love God. If you only knew the things that I love sometimes, these sick Things. Yeah, they're they're called idols. They dip theirs in gold and put some silver on top of them. We have lots of other ways of getting to ours. There's coming a day (laughs) when you will scatter them as the very things they are, as unclean things. And praise God. Look at the end of that verse 22. You will say to them, What? Be gone. I love this. It doesn't say God will say to them, be gone, right? Who's going to say it? You it. You are. Why? How? How does that ever happen? It's because there's a heart change that's coming. That you will actually look at them and go, sick and stupid. No. Get out of here. Right? That day is coming. We already sang this at the end of the song, Come Thou Fount. We sang these words. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing your sovereign grace. Come, my Lord. No longer tarry. In other words, please make the wait shorter. Bring your promises to pass, for I know your power will keep me until I'm home with you. At last. I know if it's helpful to you, I've got a, a small mind and it's easy to, sometimes not easy for me to remember things. So as I was preparing the message and, and praying that God would work on my own heart, I asked God to use the acronym, this acronym for WAIT. Willingly acknowledging I'm tiny. I find it really helpful. WAIT. Willingly acknowledging I'm tiny. Let's pray.